Kia ora, Ete whanau. You were the panel on RNZ National. I'm Guy Espiner in for Wallace Chapman this week. We're going to kick off this hour with the dreaded D word, debt. And with the cost of living crisis, more and more Kiwis are increasingly falling behind on debt repayments. Data from Credit Bureau Centrix shows the number of households falling behind on debt repayments is at its highest level in four years. These figures from Centrix show 426,000 households were in arrears in May. That's the highest number since 2019. One of the black spots in all this is personal lending from non-bank sources, often taken out by lower lower income families. One in 10 personal loan accounts was in arrears at the end of May. Let's talk to Gareth Kernan now, who is a Chief Forecaster with Infometrics. Kia ora. Good afternoon to you, Gareth. Afternoon, Guy. What do you make of these numbers? It seems like a bit of a worry to, to, to see so many people falling, arrears, falling into arrears with their debt. Yeah, it is a reflection of the squeeze that is coming on household budgets at the moment, both in terms of higher interest rates, obviously, sucking more money um, out as you have to service the mortgage for many people, and also just a, simply a higher cost of living, um, exemplified by just how expensive it is, is to go to the supermarket at the moment as well. I, I guess the, the one... Um, sort of slightly brighter spot amongst it all is that debt has been very low over the last two or three years um, and, and people getting behind of course has generally been pretty low because we have had some good economic times. So some of these numbers are coming off a, a very low base. Yeah okay so that's that's the context there that it got down pretty low. I, pre- I presume many of us paid off the credit cards in, in, in the, uh, along with the sourdough in the, in the COVID lockdown right so we were, we were hunkering down and, and paying off debt. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the payoff in, in credit card debt in particular through the pandemic was phenomenal. Credit card debt fell by about 30%, getting down to its lowest level since 2006. So the fact that it might be starting to rise a little bit now, um, it, it is, it, it's risen 4%, but it's still well, well down on where it's been for the last uh, 15 or so years. Yeah, we'll bring the panel, Alan and Alarin, shortly. But I just wanted, um, as a final question on this segment for you, to just paint us this picture because it seems to me a little bit like a, you know, a tale of two halves, if you like, or because you've got demand for home loans going down, and people who are possibly a bit wealthier are able to sort of, you know, go, okay, I'm, I'm not going to um, increase my my debt at this point. But these things, like, you know, I'm seeing car loans. <clears throat> Um, personal loans, credit cards, you know, buy now, pay later stuff, all those are up. So do you think there's a, a, an equity story here? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a divergence between uh, prospects of, of people where, look, if you've had a mortgage for 10 years, yeah, your mortgage rate's gone back up to 6.5%, but you've you've seen that before and, and you can cope with it. It's people who've either loaded themselves up with debt and you know jumped into the housing market when they thought interest rates were going to stay at 3% forever, which, of course, hasn't been the case, or indeed lower-income families where you know any increase in your, your electricity bill or your food bill, uh, if, your wage, if your wages are not keeping pace with that, um, that sort of cost growth, that you're facing as a household, then that squeeze really does come on because you don't have a lot of fat left in the system. Yeah. Ella, let's bring you in here. And look, both of you, feel free to uh, toss a question to the expert here because <laughs> uh, he won't get uh, that from me. Um, but Ella, you know, debt, it's, it's just an anxiety-inducing and, you know, it's frightening for people, right? 
Absolutely. And my weather gauge for the well-being of a society is the way shoppers look in the supermarket. And if you spend any, and I'm very fortunate, I live with my family, our, our costs and outgoings are low and I have a good job. So I'm very privileged. But you go to the supermarket and you look at the, at the level of stress on the faces often of women who are the primary shoppers trying to decide whether to buy fruit or milk. And, you know, that's that's reflected in needing to borrow money just to keep food on the table. I, I mean, those who are privileged to own a home, bless you, good on you, you're lucky. But the great mass, certainly of the Māori community, uh, 60% of us will never own a home. And, and we're the ones being most impacted by the, the growth and cost of living. And I just see some quite dark times ahead, unfortunately, unless we can see some good, clear policy to address these inequities. Mm. Alan? <clears throat> yeah, I guess I've got a question for you, Gareth. I mean, um, you know, we we see the cost of living increasing. We see the interest rates seemingly going up and up and up. And I see a couple of banks put their interest rates up this morning, their mortgage rates up this morning. How, how does all of this stop? Because obviously you get inflation, so therefore you get pressure on wages. People want more and more money, et cetera, et cetera. And it just seems to be a sort of a, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. What puts an end to all of this? Yeah, great question. Look, I think the good news is that over the last three months or so, we have just started to see signs that some of those underlying cost pressures are easing. We know internationally the supply chain disruptions, international shipping costs have um, have eased back, and so that's not such an issue. We do, are still grappling with um, uh, wage pressures or wage costs coming through, and, and there's two sides to that story, of course. One is that you know people are needing more money to get by, but it also does risk just feeding through into more business costs. But I think some relief from a business point of view, at least, with um, migration having ramped up and more people coming into the country, some of those sort of critical labour shortages that have been are really impacting on wage growth are starting to ease. And so looking forward from here, there are just the, the few first few signs of inflation um, easing back. But it, it will take another 12 to 18 months before it gets back to what we consider to be more normal level. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for that, Gareth. Thanks very much for taking the time to unpack some of that uh, with us. We really do appreciate your time, Gareth Kernan there, Infometrics Chief Forecaster, talking about those numbers. And uh, as I say, be interested to hear your experience with this. Maybe it's with uh, Buy Now, Pay Later or one of those other schemes. Uh, 2101 if you want to reach us on the text message or you can email us at the panel at RNZ. Well, Gareth Kernan was talking about uh, migration numbers there as part of that economic story. And let's move to uh, migration now. So imagine this scenario. You've, you've travelled thousands of miles from home to New Zealand to find work. You've got a job using a government scheme, a New Zealand government scheme, which vets the business as to whether they're a good employer or not. And then you're sacked within a few months of starting a new life. That's the scenario for more than 100 workers who've been left jobless after paying thousands of dollars for their visas under the government's accredited employer work visa. This is a scheme that was introduced to reduce exploitation. 63,000 people have used it to enter New Zealand and find work. But Immigration New Zealand now says it's received nearly 700 employment complaints linked to accredited employers who've used this scheme. Let's unpack this now with Alistair McClymont, who is an immigration lawyer. Welcome to the panel, Alistair. Yeah, thanks, Kyan, for having me, and uh, thanks, panel, for having me as well. Yeah, look, um, 
you know, my heart really goes out to these people. Like, I can't imagine um, how stranded you would feel if, if that was your reality. And it strikes me as uh, particularly ironic and, and, and hurtful given it was, you know, happened under the aegis of this accredited employer work visa, a, a government scheme that's designed to reduce this very problem. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really describe it as a scheme. I mean, this is the accredited employer work visa policy, which is one of the cornerstones of this country's immigration policy to fill the skill shortage needs. It's it's something that the government has been working on for um, you know, more than four years with uh, the primary purpose of stamping out migrant worker exploitation. But people like myself and other people in the industry have been saying ever since it came out that this is a disaster waiting to happen. It's incredibly badly designed policy and it, it really seemed inevitable to many of us in the industry that there was going to be a massive burst of exploitation and fraud in the market, something which we're going to be mopping up and dealing with for the next 10 years and we're just now seeing the early signs of it it's starting and it's going to continue for quite some time. I'm sure there's quite a lot of detail but what what is the headline issue in terms of what was wrong with this scheme or as you say not not scheme but this visa program what what's wrong with it? Well, look, basically under the old system, you would have a single application by an applicant where Immigration New Zealand would assess the financial sustainability of the employment, compliance with employment law, and the veracity of the qualifications and experience of the applicant. They've now taken that policy, they've divided it into three separate policies, but one of the cornerstones of this policy is that these employers who, remember the government have been saying it's all the bad employers' fault, but now the employers only have to self-declare day-to-day compliance with employment regulations. Also, while Immigration New Zealand has previously verified applicants' qualifications and work experience overseas, they're now only verifying 15% of the applicants because Head of Immigration New Zealand told the estimates briefing recently that they trust the employers to do their own verification of, of workers' experience and qualifications, while at the same time, the government policies are all saying that it's only the fault of bad employers that exploitation occurs, but it's never the fault of bad policy or bad operational decisions. But uh, it is because it's a terrible policy. Mm. Alan, it sounds like they're marking their own homework to a degree. Eh? Oh, oh, very much so. And <clears throat> I guess one thing that um, interested me, and I, I was surprised this is still on the books, but the whole 90-day um, sort of trial thing is, is still working. I, I'm surprised that's still around because I remember when National brought that in, there was all sorts of... Yes, there was. And, and perhaps some, before we bring Ella uh, back in, you, you, you could um, explain that, Alistair. I, I, I was uh, like Alan. That's exactly the thing that stuck, stuck out to me because mm. it was initially for small businesses and then they brought it in for all businesses under the national um, John Key government. I, I thought Labour had largely, yeah. largely scrapped that. Yeah. I, I think some of these people were sacked after 90 days, but and maybe it was a special um, clause in the contract, but um, is that still present in employment relationships? Yeah, look, I, I don't think this is really the problem, mm. though, um, here. I mean, what the problem we have here is the vulnerability of the workers who are who are being forced into exploitative um, working relationships. And that vulnerability comes primarily from their payment of money mm. to get the visa to yep. come into the country. So, you know, there's always issues about people being, you know, made redundant or losing the jobs. That always exists. But the exploitation explosion 
comes from workers actually paying money to get a job, which puts them into debt for a lifetime, or they have to sell their homes. But if you become exploited, you lose your jobs and you, you get here, you can't just go home because you have to recover your investment that you paid the agents or the employer. And then if you've paid money to an employer, Immigration New Zealand and the Immigration Minister's office will say that it's the workers' own fault and they will be deported back to the country they came from where they've sold their, sold their home and sold all of their assets to come here in the first place. Mm. So it's an empty <coughs> circle. That's why people mm. don't come forward and, and report things like paying money to employers to get jobs. Ella, it seems like we've got a manakitanga problem here to a degree. We always talk about migration in the economic context and we want them, then we don't. We turn this tap off, turn the other one on, tweak this policy. But we don't seem to be doing a great job of looking after these people. I do think the point that was raised is important, that, that this is actually an issue about bad policy or rather bad policing of policy. We already know we have a problem in New Zealand with modern slavery. We've had a number of cases recently that have gone to the courts where unscrupulous employers uh, have treated people horrendously, and I think this is an extension of that. So unless we have the might of the crown behind fixing this problem, it's not going to go away. It's going to get worse. Yeah, what about our international reputation on this stuff? Um, yeah, I well, agree. I, I, well, oh, no, anyway. go ahead. Sorry, Alan. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, one of the reputation is, is a big issue, but particularly around the highly skilled type of migrants coming in. We're talking about the GPs, for example. There's a news story recently that there are no GPs that have signed up to come mm-hmm. here, and, and those medical professionals, because during the COVID pandemic, we had such bad international publicity regarding our immigration policies, locking people out of the country, stalling the skilled migrant category, not enabling doctors to get residence visas so that they could buy homes or their children to go to university, doctors and professionals leaving the country because of immigration policies. So our reputation in the world now is terrible. Mm. Alan? Yeah, um, I guess one thing about this is, you know, why do they have to pay these agents or whatever to get get a job or pay the employers to get a job? Surely if they just went through directly with the New Zealand visa um, service, then um, surely they shouldn't have to be paying these, you know, Big money that, that, you know, you're right, they probably will take a lifetime to pay back given, you know, what they're going to earn over in China. There's a very good reason for that. Because Immigration New Zealand are no longer verifying the veracity of the uh, work references and the qualifications of people, agents and employers see that. Therefore, they see an opportunity of making money. Therefore, they're selling job offers in markets such as China and India by saying to people, look, you don't need qualifications. You don't need experience. You pay me the money and I'll give you the visa because they know that Immigration New Zealand are not verifying the information. So there's been a, a gap in the market has been created, which is immediately being filled by unscrupulous employers, unscrupulous licensed agents who work in conjunction to sell the job offers overseas to bring the people in who then get, and because they've paid the money, they get stuck here because they know that the government is not going to help those people if those people have paid money to an employer. Okay, just to wrap this up, this is all in the context of a big labour shortage in New Zealand. I mean, from anything, from, you know, chefs and hospitality through to doctors and nurses, you know, that's in the headlines every day. So how can we ethically and with integrity address that? 
Remember that during this whole COVID situation, uh, part of the problem was raised by first we had no international students coming in and a lot of those international students were fulfilling these sorts of jobs. We had no holiday visas. And remember, we had 10,000 people with work visas who were locked out during COVID and not allowed to come back in. These were 10,000 people that had jobs, had homes, had cars, had bank accounts and had money, but they were locked out and they weren't allowed to come back in. So that's why we have the, the labour shortages. And, and we don't have the international students now coming back in yet who to fill in a lot of those jobs. We don't yet have all the working holiday visa people coming back in. So it's really sluggish return back to those people who used to fill in a lot of these jobs. Thanks very much for your expertise, Alistair. It's great to have you on the panel this afternoon. Alistair McClymont there, who is an immigration lawyer, talking about, yet again, this exploitation of workers. More than 100 workers left jobless after paying thousands of dollars for their visas under that uh, scheme, the uh, accredited employer work visa. Let's just get a bit of your feedback now before we move on with the panel. Uh, We were talking earlier in the show about a new flying car which has got FAA approval in the United States. Uh, Peter has got in touch with us saying, I worked with a group of engineers who were working on driverless cars and they repeatedly told me seven years ago that in five years' time, 2021, we would all be using them. (laughs) So much for futurists, says Peter. Um, Oweh says, this texter, can you imagine a traffic jam in our beloved skies? Let's just work out how to get everyone moving on on public transport before we get into this level of innovation. And Guy says, when I look up into the sky, I want to see birds and the stars, not cars and drones. So there you go. We'll get to some other um, feedback because we've had plenty in on cost of living and we've also had a few on fishing. We're going to talk fishing a little bit later. I know this always gets people going. We're going to be talking about salmon and trout and whether they may be classed as pests under RMA changes. That's a little bit later in the programme. Well, it's 4.25, 25 minutes past four. I always have to check the clock because I usually get up very early in the morning when I'm on <laughs> RNZ and so I keep wishing people a good morning and the producers keep scolding me every time I grab another coffee um, for not saying uh, good afternoon. But good afternoon if you're joining us on the panel. Here's a question for you. It's on the, on the list of existential questions. This one is well, on the tip of the tongue, especially if you're a lover of sausage rolls or pies or anything. Chris that Hopkins. Might... <laughs> yes. Well, our prime ministerial love of sausage rolls has uh, gone global. Uh, so he, he'll be interested in this question. In fact, he should um, see if we can get hold of him. Let's, let's see if we can whack an email through to his press secretary and find out the question. The question after that very long intro is, does it go in the fridge or the cupboard ketchup or tomato sauce? Fridge or cupboard? It's, it's a debate that's gone viral in the last few days after Kraft Heinz sent out a tweet. It's just a five-word tweet. It actually reminded me a bit of a Trump tweet because it had the, you know, lots of capital letters and exclamation marks. But it said, FYI, ketchup goes in the Fridge, and it had three exclamation marks. So four million people reacted to this. We're going to make that four million and two <laughs> by getting Alan and Atlas' views on this. All right, well, this is, this is one of those classic yes or no questions, isn't it, Ella? What do you reckon? Fridge or oh, cupboard? Fridge. Fridge, absolutely, and I come from a background when I was born, we didn't even have electricity. So owning, uh, you know, (laughs) in Kaitaia in the far north in the 50s, uh, you know, tomato sauce was the height of the bourgeoisie, I'm telling you. Now, now, now just generationally, um, I bet you didn't call it ketchup back in the day, eh? Mm. That's Americanism, yeah? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no, no. Yeah. So it was um, tomato sauce. Are you <laughs> tomato sauce? <laughs> to, oh, okay. Yeah. Or tea sauces, it seems to be known these days. Oh, really? I believe. Yeah. yeah. Amongst the younger generation. Yeah. Will you whack it in the cupboard or whack it in the no, fridge? No, no, it goes in the fridge. It goes in the it's fridge. It's not ketchup and it goes in the fridge. There yeah. You go. Simple. Yeah. Well, I, I did a quick check on the RNZ <laughs> fridge, which isn't the most um, happy environment all the time. We're one of those places where they send out an all email saying, are you going to clean the fridge out of whatever? And, um, yep, there was a couple of dutiful um, uh, containers of, of ketchup in, in the fridge. So it looks like RNZ is keeping with the cope up there and keeping it in the fridge. Is it upside down or is it supposedly no, right side it up? No, not but it is better to keep it upside yeah, down, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, see, upside down and in the fridge. There we go. Yeah, that's a good qualifier, actually. Um, <laughs> The thing is with this stuff, eh, Ella? Um, do you reckon this is just crafty marketing that I have fallen for? Oh, in my there's another pun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, crafty marketing all the way, all the way, all the way to the supermarket. Crafty. <laughs> but they do this, these food companies, and we always fall for it in the media, you know, like Oreos or something, or put out a thing saying, oh, we've gone back to some old recipe and we will leap on it, and it's really just a, a bit of marketing a marketing point. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What very, do you reckon? Very possibly. Yeah. Tomato sauce sales could have been... A bit slow. <laughs> yeah. Well, our Prime Minister's doing his bit for, for, for that, eh? We still haven't found out, have we? Nothing from Chris Hipkins yet? No. We'll, we'll bring you that breaking... Stay tuned, folks. We'll bring you that breaking news. <laughs> we had breaking political news yesterday, which I got very excited about, and then the producer said to me, oh, yeah, yeah, you're just, you know, you, you know too much politics on the panel. Um, but we've been, t- we've been talking about the cost of living um, with the debt numbers out from Centrix showing that one in ten personal loans are in arrears and 426,000 Kiwi families are behind on some of their debts. These are usually non-bank loans and we're not talking about mortgages, we're talking about cars, personal loans, that sort of thing. Um, said, uh, uh, we've, we've had a little bit of feedback on this. Uh, one texter says, loan sharks, my son, who should have known better, just took yeah, just took out a five hundred dollar loan from cash converters without reading the T's and C's, mm. with a hundred and forty five dollar establishment fee, four dollar weekly admin fee, and get this, hold on to your hats for this one, forty nine point nine five percent interest. By October, he will have paid back $800. Gee, that makes me sad. That's, um, mm. yeah, I mean, I can't verify um, what, what that company's done, but that, that, is, that, that is a message in, in good faith that, that we're reading out here. Um, that's without a potential direct debit default penalty of $13, um, and he had a less than perfect credit rating. That's hard to hear, eh, Ella? It's, uh, you know, and I know that my daughter, the youngest, she bought her first car last year and, uh, you know, I said, do it, take out a loan, get yourself a credit rating, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, as the industry that she works in is slowing down, she's starting to get a little bit nervous about being able to make her payments. Luckily, she lives with the bank of mum. <laughs> yeah, the bank mum did. I was going to say about, I mean, I don't know whether any, uh, either of you know much about the car loan thing, but the, they, they used to make more money on the loans than, you know, that they make on the margin of, of the car, some of those mm. second-hand dealers. I mean, they, they can be incredibly high interest rates. I don't know if anyone knows what they are at the moment, but they can be really brutal. Well, Absolutely. You know. And F&I, it's a field, F&I, finance and insurance, oh, they yeah. were the original of the 1980s white shirt, white shoe brigade, mm-hmm. the <laughs> F&I boys of the car, car with, with the emphasis on the F&I. Yeah. <laughs> F&I. Yeah. 